0: So let there be peace on earth. That is the end result. That's the goal. The means God's going to get to that end, He hinted at in the second chapter of Psalms when He talked about His Son, He was going to give Him a rod of iron. In the 110th Psalm, when He talked about ruling, He hinted at those means and He reinforced them heavily in the book of Revelation. It's going to take a process to bring this world back into peace. But you and I can enter into a state of peace with God right now. We don't have to wait A thousand years to be at peace with God. You can be at peace with God today. You can submit your life to the Lord today. You can cast your cares on Him today. Submitting to Him actually includes casting your cares on Him. Isn't that nice? When you submit, you're actually giving Him all the things that you can't handle. God, there's all these things I can't handle. I've made a mess. There's a lot of conditions in my life that aren't where they need to be. I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to ask forgiveness of those things. I'm going to repent, but I'm going to give them to you. And God, I am going to give you the authority to make the changes necessary to bring me to the place you want me to be so I can be at peace with you. So I can have all those qualities working in my life. Wouldn't you like to feel a spirit of love on you all the time? Wouldn't it be nice to feel joy, whatever occurs? That's hard. It takes a process to get to that. You've got to submit yourself to God over a period of time for God to work things out of you. He's not just going to pluck it out every time you've got a problem. There's times that we could use this phrase in a practical sense. God does a quick work and cuts it short in righteousness. That had happened to me several times in my life when I reached a place where I knew this is as far as I can go, Lord. This is as strong as I am in terms of this particular element. And God just stepped in when I had exhausted all of my finite resources to use the words of a song. He giveth and giveth, and giveth again. Isn't he a good God? Amen. What a God that we serve, saints. He'll produce those things in us. He'll do it through his spirit. He'll do it through a mechanism. There's a way that God produces those things. And you can't expect to have those qualities produced in your life outside of the covering of God. These seven spirits of God that are mentioned in Isaiah are the mechanisms through which he produces those in us. You've got to go through those seven spirits and really study them. Be careful not just to study the Bible on the surface and find out what the word is that they used in whatever translation. We generally use the King James. Find out what word it is and then look in the Merriam-Webster's dictionary. You're going to have two problems when you do that. One of them is the word that they translated may not be the right meaning of the Hebrew or Greek. Number two, Merriam-Webster may not know what the meaning is God was trying to convey. So be careful doing that kind of word study. It's good to use those tools. But the best thing you can do with some of these really important concepts, like the fruit of the Spirit, like the spirits of God, is to look at what the original language means and understand what that would represent in terms of the context. So if you were to go through those seven spirits, I'm not going to do it in any depth today. Before I even do that, let's go back to Jude for a minute. I didn't finish that, did I? That just struck me. Let's go back to Jude before I go to there. Some with compassion, making a difference, that 22nd verse. Others with fear, pulling out of the fire. Now, that probably isn't a gentle coaxing out of the fire. If you saw your child fall into a fire, are you going to say, honey, come on out of there? Are you going to slowly walk over, make sure you don't make them skittish, you know, wouldn't want to scare somebody? Reach down there real slow and say, here, give me your hand. Don't be afraid. I just want to get you out of the fire you're in. When somebody's in the fire, there's no time for compassion when somebody's in the fire. Fear, unfortunately, will have to be the determining factor to get them out of the condition they're in. So some with compassion, some save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. By the way, this last one is a little bit different in terms of the way it should be interpreted too. Hating even the garment spotted by the flesh, that's a little piece of advice. It doesn't sound that clear. It sounds like you're hating their sin. Well, it's much deeper than that. That means be very careful because the condition therein, if you're not careful, if you touch it and you get your hand on it, you may have it affect you. You know why? That goes back to the law, the garment spotted by the flesh. That means when somebody had uncleanness on them, they were to be separated from the people. You weren't to touch them and make you unclean. Ceremonially speaking, if you touched someone that was unclean, you'd be unclean. So when it says hating the garment spotted by the flesh, it's giving you a strong warning. You need to keep enough distance with an individual who's gotten into an even deeper state where now you can't pull them out of the fire. They're resisting that. You better get your distance because the garment they're wearing is unclean. And if you get in there with them, you're going to get your garments unclean too. You may get pulled in. Something has to be the power. That's where we'd go back to Isaiah 11, where you see some of these spirits of God. Because there's some things that if you have the knowledge of some of these things, it'll produce the right end result in your life. If we turn over to Isaiah 11 for a minute, it goes through those seven spirits, beginning with the Spirit of God, which... You know the parallel we make with this. If you're going to see an example of these same seven things, you'd look at the lampstand in the tabernacle or in the temple. The lampstand was not a nine-branched menorah like you see after the events of the period of the Maccabees when the oil lasted for a certain amount of time. So they started using these nine-branched menorahs as a reminder of that for the Feast of Hanukkah, Feast of Lights. This is a seven-branched menorah. One central shaft and three on each side that came off that central shaft. And at the top, there were seven places. One was the main shaft, though. The other three on each side were the branches that came off of that shaft. That's what the seven spirits of God are. The Spirit of God is the main shaft. It's the principal thing through which all of them come. And without you being filled with the Spirit of God, the other elements will not be able to work in your life to their fullness. God can put one over you. You know, when they built the tabernacle, Bezaliel, who was the principal builder of most of the, what you call the furniture, I don't like using that term, by the way, because nobody was sitting on it. The furnishings, we might say, of the tabernacle, things like the golden lampstand, things like the Ark of the Covenant, table to show bread, golden altar. The principal supervisory construction worker on that was Bezaliel. Do you realize in the record when it talks about Bezaliel, it says, I have placed upon him spirit of knowledge wisdom and understanding isn't that interesting three of the seven spirits of god now he didn't have them in their fullness he had a covering of those three spirits to get that job done we're gonna have to have all seven we want to come to the place god intends us to be in terms of what he wants produced these seven spirits all have something in them that will help you to produce the fruits of the spirit wisdom is the very first one of these after the spirit of god spirit of wisdom what do you think wisdom is That's the ability, if you want to have a simple definition, to apply knowledge at the right time and in the right way. Just think if you had a lot of knowledge, but you didn't know how to use it. You can cause more damage than good, wouldn't you? It's one of the things that we mean when we say watch the Spirit. When we're talking about watching the Spirit, what we mean is have enough spiritual wisdom to be aware of what the Spirit is doing so you know what you should be doing. That's not just the role of the ministry. It's the role of the whole church. We need to watch the Spirit. If the Spirit is moving, we have a responsibility to respond to what the Spirit's doing. If the Spirit is anointing something, we have a responsibility to respond to that. That's true from the pulpit to the pew. We have a responsibility. We want to open our hearts, open our minds, open our spiritual ears. We want to respond. If God moves into the church, we ought to raise our hands. We ought to raise our voices. God's making Himself known. We ought to express. We know You're here, Lord, and we're so thankful that You're here with us today. Amen? Amen. When we're standing in this pulpit, brethren, we ought to watch the Spirit. If the Spirit's not anointing what we're saying or doing, we ought to cut it down and move on. Now, none of you are doing that. I'm not correcting any of you. We got to be careful. Watch the Spirit. Be aware. Our words you're going to say going to be ineffective. We are on God's time when we're here. I want to make the best use of God's time, whether the whole service is a worship service. These last few weeks, we've had long worship services. I've so appreciated it. People around the altar and little joy getting so close, Sister Jill. Oh, my Lord. Last week, she was just at the very brink of breaking through. We need that every opportunity we can get. And we need the teaching of the Word, every opportunity we can get. And we need the testimonies of the saints, every opportunity we can get. But those opportunities are defined by God. He knows the need. So when we watch the Spirit, we're watching for what God wants in the service. Wisdom is our ability to apply the knowledge we have, though, at the right time in the right way. Usually that comes by experience, you know. The most natural way you learn wisdom is by experience. You realize, I can tell what's going on in this service, and it's not the right time to do such and such. Or I can tell what's going on in someone's life. Here's an example in a practical sense. Maybe this person needs somebody to take them aside and say, you need to stop doing what you're doing. It's going to destroy you. But they are not emotionally ready to hear it. That takes wisdom. They may be so emotionally distraught about something right then, they're not emotionally ready to be corrected. They're not emotionally ready to have somebody get a hold of them and say, you've got to stop doing this or you've got to get this attitude of yours right. They wouldn't be able to handle it if you gave them that instruction. It takes wisdom to know how to address those things. Then understanding, which is not very complicated. That's insight, discernment, perception. Not just when and how to do things, but what's going on and why is it going on? Like the men of Issachar, they had a discernment, a knowledge, an understanding. The King James Version says, of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. We need men and women with an understanding of the times right now. What is our responsibility in a day like this? That'll take some Understanding. Why do we have to do what we're doing? Listen, this is an interesting statement that was made in the Proverbs where he said, get knowledge, get wisdom. But with all thy getting, get what? Understanding. Why? Why is understanding so critically important, even if you're getting a lot of wisdom and knowledge? Because sometimes you can have a lot of knowledge. You know what needs to be said. You know when it needs to be said. You know what needs to be done. You know when it needs to be done. But maybe you're not inspired to do it. Maybe you don't really want to do it. Maybe you haven't been given the courage to do it. I think Joshua had been well prepared to lead Israel. I think he'd watched how Moses handled things, good and bad. Look, that's a good lesson. Sometimes we have problems at leadership. You know what the advantage of problems at leadership is? You learn what not to do the next time. Now, we don't want any problems at leadership. God in heaven forbid. But the advantage, if there is one, there is. To someone failing at leadership is, there is a warning sent out. This is not the way to do things. Judgment will follow. let's not do that the next time around. You can learn good and bad examples from individuals. You can learn good examples by watching them. I said that they were supposed to replicate their rabbis. You can learn a good example by watching someone and seeing how they handle conditions. You can learn a bad example by watching them. There's times that Joshua could have learned tremendously examples from Moses. Moses was, in most of his life, fulfilling the statement made about him that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. But he wasn't always the meekest man on the face of the earth. He wasn't acting very meekly when he struck the rock again. And Joshua, if he was wise, saw that and saw, listen, the end result, the fruit of Moses doing that. The end result of Moses getting out into that spirit was Moses didn't get to go over into the promised land. You saw the fruit of acting that way. So if you were wise and watching Moses, you'd come to the conclusion, I can't act like that. I can't lose my temper like that and go past what God's instructed me because I'll end up like he did. I'll produce the same fruit he did, which meant his spirit wasn't right, and God took him out of the possibility of crossing that Jordan River because of it. We need to have an understanding. The understanding side of it is we need to know why. Get knowledge and get wisdom, but with all thy getting, get understanding. It doesn't do you any good to have all the knowledge in the world and know how to apply it if you really don't know why you should even bother. That'd be like someone studying their Bible and being able to quote any verse in the Bible. I've known people like this. They can quote massive sections of the Bible, but their spirit doesn't match their knowledge. I've seen people that can teach for hours, but their spirit doesn't match the knowledge. You'll know them by their fruit, saints. That's not just the fruit of what they produce in terms of, if you're talking about a minister, in terms of the congregation they have or how much money is in the bank or how big the church is, how nice the building is. Those are external fruits. The most important fruit is the fruit produced in the man's life that produces spiritual fruit in other people's lives. You want to know somebody by their fruit, you can see the fruit of their own life and you can see their fruit in other people's lives. You understand? That's the true fruit inspection we need to be doing what fruit do I see in that individual's life that I would want to emulate? What fruit are they producing in the lives of other people that I can tell this is real? If it's not real, it's probably not going to be passed on to other people. That's just like a father or a mother saying a terrible example in the home and expecting the children to be godly because they act godly at church. You say that's going to happen? You're not going to produce good fruit unless you are good fruit. If it's not good, it's going to produce after its kind, you know. We need to have an understanding. Now, the understanding side of this is pretty simple. We need to know why we're doing what we're doing. You have all that knowledge. You've got all that wisdom. But if you don't down inside your heart believe that God is real and that I have a responsibility to Him, you're going to have a terrible lack of understanding. And all that knowledge and wisdom isn't going to do you one bit of good. And then we've got to have counsel. Direction. What should be done? That doesn't just mean you give counsel either. You might have the spirit of counsel in the sense that God gives you insights to give counsel. But I'm going to tell you what the best spirit of counsel all of us can have, including any leader in the church, is the spirit to take counsel. None of us are outside the line of authority where we're not responsible for taking counsel. I've got to take counsel. You've got to take counsel. We all have to take counsel. You know where we take counsel in the most direct sense? At the throne of God. We don't take counsel based on what the world's doing. Well, I'd advise you to get with the program because all the other churches in Mansfield are going to start doing things such and such a way, aren't they? They are, probably. A lot of them are going to do a lot of things that are going to be taking counsel at the mouths of what amounts to political talking heads. You don't get with the program, the church will get smaller. You don't get with the program, you're going to be categorized as an extremist or whatever the case might be because of your biblical views. We take counsel at the mouth of the Lord. We don't take counsel at the sound of all this racket going on outside the walls. We take counsel at the mouth of the Lord. That's harder to do. This world is shouting and yelling, trying to get your attention. They're all over the place trying to get your attention. From the billboards, to the television, to the radio, there's a constant bombardment of the world trying to give you counsel. Counsel about what products to buy, counsel about what attitude to have, counsel about what worldview to take. All of it's all around us all the time. But the children of God ought to take counsel first at the mouth of the Lord. That means God is the one that gives us our direction. Our direction is not determined by a fallen society. Our direction is not determined by our emotions. Here's where the danger's at. Because if we allow our emotions to direct our decisions, we'll be in a dangerous place. Sometimes that's good. I think it was Brother Ryan I was talking to about how strange it is that two of the big cultural issues right now One, the percentage of people being against it is raising. On the other side, the percentage of people being against it is lowering. The percentage of people that are against what I was talking about earlier, against some of these issues that are going on in terms of the murder of children, is actually getting higher. People are starting to respond more to why that would be a wrong thing to do. On the other hand, this other major cultural issue, in terms of the issues related to relationships, is increasing in the opposite direction. You'd think, well, how can that be that it's going on at the same time? One thing that is a good thing is happening. while well, one thing is a bad thing is happening. It's because they're both generated by the same thing, emotion. Right now, we're in a very emotional generation. They get upset about everything. They get excited about everything. They get overly emotionally stimulated. And if you do present an emotional case, you probably will get some people to respond to you. They respond to emotion even more than anything intellectual. They're doing the same thing on the opposite side, though. When it comes to lifestyles, you know what the argument is? It's an emotional argument. It's not an intellectual argument. There's nothing intellectual you can make an argument for that. Every time science, by the way, defines things a little tighter, it doesn't help that concept. And you know what happens? Every time science discovers something else, that looks like, well, this doesn't back up what the mainstream media wants you to believe. You know what they do? They almost always assault the people that did the study call them names and everything else, and some of them are liberals themselves. They just took the facts and presented them. See, we're driven by a lot of emotion, saints. We cannot be driven by emotion. We've got to take counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Let the Lord counsel us. You want to have some of those qualities? You want to have holiness and righteousness, two of those fruits of the Spirit? Let the Lord counsel you as to His will. Holiness and righteousness aren't defined by a carnal, secular society. They're defined by the God of heaven. Praise His holy name. Goodness, meekness, temperance, what those really mean, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, what those things really mean are not defined by society. They're defined by the eternal God that created those things. They have a much deeper, more important meaning than what the common concept of it is in society. You know, they'd love you to be meek from their perspective. Just stay quiet and get out of the way and let us walk over you. That's not meekness. Meekness is not acting when you could choose to, when you know that it would have a negative result rather than a positive result. Meekness is not not acting when you have the ability to act. If you saw somebody drowning and they were yelling out for help and you say, well, I've got the strength to help them, but I'm not going to do it. You know how ridiculous that is? Meekness is not not acting. It's not acting when you know that your actions would not produce a good result. It will just make it worse. I told you a little bit ago, sometimes people get in the spirit and they need somebody to counsel them and tell them, you've got to get out of what you're doing. You've got to stop this. But they won't hear it. You trying to talk to them about it then will make it worse. That's when you need wisdom. Should I speak to this person? That's why I include the word discernment with that. God let me know, is this something I should say? Before you jump the gun, ask the Lord, is it time? Should I say something? Because you could say something at a time when it would make the condition worse. What's meek is things are going on around you that you might want to respond to. They might really upset you. But you know responding would make it worse rather than better. And so I'm going to swallow my pride and demonstrate meekness when I could act. I have the ability to act. I've got the intellectual understanding to act. I've got a command of the condition that I could act. But I know that whatever I do will not be productive. It'll be counterproductive. So I'm going to take the blows rather than to do anything. You understand now what I'm talking about? How meek was it when Moses carried out God's judgment on the people several times? That's because that was what had to be done. But there were times that they abused Moses, and him responding back, that wouldn't have produced anything. It just would have made the condition worse, and he just took it. Until God ended that. We've got to have might. A lot of people like that one. Might to do what? Might is power that's acting on you, in you, or through you. Through you means you're the vessel of that power and you're acting with that power. But on you means it's acting on you in the sense that it's external to you. In you means it's working within you. You know, a lot of times people want it working through them. A lot of the charismatic leaders in this present generation, that's what it's all about for them. Power working through them. So they get a lot of attention. You know what they need more than anything? They need power working in them. Nobody needs to see it. They don't need any attention for it. But there are so many problems, so many corrupt bones inside those whitewashed sepulchers, and they're walking around wanting to be the extensions of power. And their own life is such an absolute mess. They need power, all right, but they need it to be working on them, not through them. We need the power of God. We need the spirit of might. We need it working on us. We need it working through us. But the only way it's going to work through us with any effectiveness to be able to change things in this world is if it's working in us, changing things in us. I'm going to go back to that song again. Let there be peace on earth. Let it begin with me. When the power of God is working in you, the power of God can work through you. It has to begin with you. If you don't allow God to work on you, He's not going to be able to do much work through you. Thank God He's still working on us. And that's not all. He's still working through us. The might that we want is might to stand against this world, but that might is going to have to be something that is living in us so God can work through us, saints. The kind of strength we need to be able to do what's necessary in this generation. And then we're going to need knowledge. Now, knowledge is pretty obvious, isn't it? It's just cognition. It's just the fact that you clearly understand a concept of some kind. Let's use two C words. You need to have clarity and certainty. That's true knowledge. Because it doesn't do you any good to have knowledge of something you're not sure is real. It doesn't do you any good to have knowledge of something you don't really know that you believe in. You've got to know it, and you've got to know that it's true. Not just know it, like somebody quoting facts about something they're not even sure is real or accurate. We do have to have knowledge, but knowledge is more than just what you know. It's knowing what you know. Knowing that what you know is true. It's not important if you've got knowledge if you're not convinced of it. See, what gives knowledge power is when there's a certainty driving it. When you know, I know something and I know it's real. Look, your knowledge of God has to be that way. I'm not just talking about knowledge of the Scripture now. That is part of this. I'm talking about knowledge of God. Your knowledge of God has to be certain. That's one of the reasons we believe in experiential salvation. It adds another witness of certainty, saints. Look, there's a certainty in the Bible, if you can have confidence in God's Word but there's a certainty in God's interaction right now. God is still interacting with His people right now. You can know Him. You can know Him through His Word, but you can know Him through His spiritual interaction with you. We want all the evidences we can get. You know why? It adds certainty to our faith. I've got the Word of God, but I've got His person too. I have felt His presence. I have felt... His Spirit, not just radiating from the words of this book. I have felt His Spirit moving through the members of my body. Praise His holy name. That's real salvation. Salvation that fastens itself to something that's real and that can be felt and experienced. We have to have more than just an intellectual conception of God. We've got to have an emotional conception. And when God really gets complete control of your intellect, and gets complete control of your emotions, you will have a spiritual conception of him. And then finally, the last of these seven spirits of God is the fear of the Lord. That in simplicity is an awareness of who God is and what God is. You know how many of of the 12 fruits of the Spirit to be created by that alone? You'd want to be holy if you know God's holy. Isn't that what he said? He said, be ye therefore holy even as I'm holy. If you really understand that God's holy and you really want to be in relationship with Him, you're going to want to be holy. You'll start having fruits produced in your life off of the extension of the Spirit of God working in your life through these seven spirits. They've been on my mind these last few weeks. I want you to study them. Study those seven spirits of God. Study what you think would be produced by them. What kind of qualities would occur in your life that you could maybe even tie the 12 fruits of the Spirit that would be produced merely by you having the fear of the Lord? What about the fact that you'd have knowledge or wisdom or understanding? Do you realize if you had wisdom, you'd be able to treat people better? And that word goodness in the fruits of the Spirit is talking about the way you treat people. You treat them with a kindness and compassion. Do you realize you'd be able to do that if you had enough wisdom? That you would know when to say things and when not to say things? How to do things and how not to do things? We have been talking more than any other subject this last year about the restoration of the church. What do you think a restored church is going to look like? This world has to see the real thing, saints. A restored church is going to be a church producing the twelve fruits of the Spirit, among many other things. Thank God for the work that He does in our lives. Thank God.